This morning, <clears throat> we're going to be looking at Ephesians 4, 17 through 5-2. Very familiar passage of Scripture to most of us because it's a passage we often use in biblical counseling and one that we should all be extremely familiar with because it contains a roadmap of what Christ-likeness is. It tells us what we should look like as Jesus' followers. But just to get things started out this morning, we're going to uh, take a quiz, a test to make sure that you're intelligent enough to do this Christian thing. It's titled, The World's Easiest Quiz, so you shouldn't have any trouble with it. No cheating. Uh, You can write down your answers if you want to, but hopefully you can just remember them. There's only 10 questions. And it starts out with, how long did the Hundred Years' War last? <laughs> Question number two, which country makes Panama hats? Number three, from which animal do we get cat gut? Number four, in which month do the Russians celebrate the October Revolution? Number five, what is camel's hair brush made of? The Canary Islands in the Pacific are named after what animal? What was King George VI's first name? What color is a purple finch? Where are Chinese gooseberries from? And last but not least, what is the color of the black box in a commercial airline? All right, you ready with your answers here? Let's try number one here. How long did the Hundred Years' War last? 116 years. How'd you do? Which which country makes Panama hats? Ecuador. From which... It's just going to slap you right upside the face. From, From which animal do we get cat gut? Not cats. Sheep and horses? In which month do the Russians celebrate the October Revolution? Not October. What is camel's hair brush made of? Squirrel hair. Yeah. Uh, The Canary Islands? Named after what animal? Dogs. What was King George VI's first name? Albert, of course. What color is a purple finch? It's actually crimson. (laughs) Where are Chinese gooseberries from? New Zealand, and what is the color of the black box in a commercial airplane? It's orange. All right. How did everybody do? You failed? Really? How could something that's supposed to be so easy, that started out so simply, become so complicated? Well, the world's easiest quiz was not the world's easiest quiz, obviously. It was a trick. It was not what it was labeled to be. In fact, the whole thing was one big hoax, wasn't it? But fortunately for all of us, God isn't like that at all. He's pretty straightforward. He never tries to trick us. He never tries to tell us to do something that we're not able or capable of doing or not equipped to do. His word lays out for us a roadmap of 
what our lives should be like as followers of Jesus. And we won't get tricked, and we won't fail. And the passage we're looking at this morning is one that shows very clearly what God wants from each one of us. He wants us to be different. And that difference should be noticeable when we're walking through the world. So let's take a look at the passage and see what it is that we are to be doing. It starts out in verse 17. It says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil a foothold, an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. I'm all right, thanks. Now, obviously, this passage that we've just read is too long for us to get too deep into it. It will be nothing more than a cursory look, but it will be a guide. And every one of us should use it as a guide. Give us something to think about this week. Give us something to do. Give us something to be, whether we're at work or school or home. It should remind us to be different. Several years ago, talking about being different, several years ago I was working on a federal task force, and I had occasion to be in Lubbock, Texas, uh, where we arrested a, a biker, no, that was not me. That was, that was the guy I arrested. Uh, and we arrested him on some, some pretty serious charges, and he was something of a kingpin within the organization. And my job was to befriend this guy and to get him to talk, to get him to roll over on, on his buddies. And it began with an initial interview in a jail cell in Lubbock, Texas, and the interview lasted over 20 hours uh, And in 20 hours sitting in a jail cell with another guy, 
you can learn a lot about somebody. And one of the things we talked about extensively was why this guy had chosen the life path that he had chosen. I mean, let's face it, the guy, guy wasn't only a biker, but he was a criminal. And, and he had long hair and wore leather clothes, and he even had his own language. You know, they, they talk different. I mean, if he was to say to you, I had to drop a dime on my wrench so he could look at my sled, would you know that he meant he telephoned his mechanic to have him look at his motorcycle? Anyway, in talking with this guy about his chosen lifestyle, he explained to me how it was just his basic personality. He was a rebel. He wasn't like everyone else. He wasn't going to conform to any kind of societal norm. And he was determined to be himself, to be different. And he kept using that term. I am different than everybody else. <clears throat> but in the past week, I had arrested several of his uh, buddies, the men he hang around, hung around with, and each one of them had long hair and wore leather and talked the same way this guy did. In fact, when I looked at a photograph of the guy with his immediate criminal organization, it was hard to pick him out because they all looked just like him. So what I figured out was he wanted to be different just like everybody else. You know, that doesn't make any sense. What is it about American society in general that has led to the creation of certain subcultures, certain countercultures throughout the years? And we can go back, I mean, the 20s, certainly the there were the flappers whose outrageous dress and conduct was embarrassing to the older generation. In the 50s, were, you had what were called the greasers, and they were teenagers sought to be different by greasing their hair back and rocking to Elvis Presley and, and uh, generally frightening any man that had a daughter that was dating age. And <clears throat> the 60s, the flower children, you know, they, that was rather iconic. Uh, they sought to be different by sticking flowers in their hair and tie-dyeing their T-shirts and listening to Scott McKenzie sing, If You're Going to San Francisco. Uh, they grew their hair longer and promoted love, not war. The 70s saw disco in the 80s, breakdancing in the 90s, gangsta rap, and so on and so on. So where every generation seems to, in fact, probably every decade, seems to have something that they are iconically known for. a counterculture. Yet when we look back over those periods of time, the fact is that these have become icons of the culture. They aren't counterculture at all. They became ways to identify that culture. <clears throat> and each year, and every one of these started out as countercultural phenomenons that became the culture. 60s, what, what, would be the, what would be iconic about the 60s? Anybody? Uh, protests, drugs, violence, Vietnam. All of those were countercultural aspects until they became the culture. And it's hard to say what the cultural norms will be for the decade of the 2020s. Cancel culture, rewrite history culture, 
it's my choice culture? I don't know, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be bad. And, um, and it's going to lead to something that's even worse than what we have right now. Because if you think about it, it's pretty hard to sustain a purely countercultural movement or revolution because as soon as it reaches a certain amount of popularity, it becomes the culture and is no longer different. And I think you follow me on this. And I say all of this to ask the question, what has become the norm in our culture and where do we as Christians fit in? Are we cultural? Are we countercultural? And this is what Paul is interested in. In this passage this morning, he starts the chapter out, in chapter 4, by making a statement in verse 1, and then follows through with it by the passage that we're looking at. And the chapter starts out with this statement, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Literally, he's saying, walk the walk that God has called you to do, that is worthy of what God has done for you. You're Christians. Live like it. And in today's text, Paul continues that same train of thought by telling us, walk worthy of your call by being different from the world. The first two verses of our text tell us, so this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And I don't know if Paul could have painted a more accurate picture of our culture today. And he paints a really horrific picture, doesn't he? Futility of their mind, darkened in their understanding, ignorance, hardened heart, callous, giving themselves over to sensuality, practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. But this is really a picture of life without God, isn't it? Which is kind of where our culture is. And it may as well have been written today instead of 2,000 years ago because it looks just like a snapshot of the 21st century. And it strikes me that a lot of Christians get up in arms about the current state of affairs in our world, as we probably should. Uh, prayer has been taken out of our schools. Ten commandments aren't allowed on the walls. A 16-year-old girl is, has to have permission to go on a field trip with her class, but can have an abortion without her parents being told. Schools can teach Islam, but they can't mention Jesus or pass out Bibles. And all of these things are bad, granted. There's no doubt they're horrible. Our world is really messed up, no doubt about it. But my question is, why are we surprised that the world is behaving like the world? Because we can get up in arms about a lot of things. Aren't we told in the Bible that the world is in control of Satan? We're even warned that while we have to live in the world, we're not to be of the world, because we're supposed to be different. How, how, how many of you grew up in the Sesame Street generations? 
How many grew up watching Sesame Street? Well, that's anybody that was born after November of 1969 because that's when Sesame Street started, November of 1969. At the time, I was in Vietnam, and I didn't have a TV or I'd have watched Sesame Street, too. Uh, but I remember my kids watching it and my grandkids, and I remember a segment <clears throat> that had a song that went, one of these things, one of these things doesn't belong, right? You remember that? I'm sorry I brought that up because now it's going to be in your head the rest of the day. <laughs> you're not going to get it out. It's just you're just going to keep singing it. <clears throat> but they would show several things that were obviously the same and then one that was totally different, wouldn't they? And that's what God is telling us. We should be noticeably different. People should be able to identify us right away. But I'm afraid what we're hearing and what we're seeing in even our Christian culture today is more like what the Sunday funny papers do with these one of these things is not like the other. Have you seen those in the Sunday funny papers? You know, which two are exactly alike? And they all look the same, and you have to study them hard to see what the difference is. And what you find out is, is there was like a hair or something that was different. And I'm afraid that's where a lot of Christians are right now. Yeah, I'm different. Look, I've got this one hair. And we're not that one of these things is not like the other. We're not the Sesame Street generation. We're more the <coughs> Albuquerque Journal uh, group. People shouldn't have to study us to see the difference. They should see it right away. They should see it in everything that we do. The world is going to be the world. And I don't mean that Christians shouldn't do what we can to change what we can, what we have influence over. But it's a reminder just how desperately the world needs Jesus, too. The bottom line, Paul paints a horrible picture, but it's a typical picture of people who don't know Jesus Christ. And we should be so different that they go, whatever you got, I want. You're really different. And Paul's message is clear. Life without Jesus is meaningless. The thinking of the Gentiles was to no end. It was futile. It was pointless. Solomon, the wise old teacher of Ecclesiastes, understood this thought very well. He said, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then returning towards the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are worrisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. There is, there is nothing new under the sun. And that seems a bit depressing, <clears throat> but he seems to make his life's ambition, his life's work, 
is seeking meaning for life. And he sought it in a lot of different places. If you thumb through the, you, you go through the pages of Ecclesiastes, you see that you know he he sought, he sought life's meaning in in wisdom, in in pleasure, and in work, and in riches. This guy had literally all the money in the world. He lacked nothing, and yet he sought meaning in his life. And in the end, this is what he concludes with in Ecclesiastes twelve. He says, but beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is worrying to the body. The conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. In the end, the wise old teacher could only find meaning in a relationship with God. So where are we seeking fulfillment, happiness? Or are we seeking meaning for our lives? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever gotten really down to it and thought about the deeper things of where am I seeking my meaning in life? We look in a lot of different places today, a lot of the places that Solomon was looking at. Wisdom of men, what makes us happy, our jobs, money, wealth. That's still where the world's looking. But as Christians, perhaps our reaction to things like this in the world shouldn't be, oh, my God, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Maybe our reaction should be, how sad that someone would live this way not knowing Jesus. What can I do to live so counterculturally that I could share the good news of a better way with them? There's meaning in life right there, real serious meaning. Because as Christians, we know that life with Jesus is transforming. And Paul goes on, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in, your, in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Now, we've got to understand that knowing Jesus is more than knowing about Jesus, obviously. Knowing facts about Jesus doesn't do a lot of good for us. It's about our relationship, obviously. About knowing him personally. And that's why he came to earth in the flesh. God had already given us the facts about Jesus. He had given him facts about himself in the old law. Now, we knew who God was, but in Jesus we have the opportunity to actually know him firsthand. The truth is not facts about Jesus. The truth is Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We can know truth by knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus makes all the difference. It's transforming. And that's the, that's the life we should be living, a transformed life, so that the world can say, what's different about you? And Paul tells us we need to put off the old, cast it aside, and put on the new, this relationship that makes us so different than what the world is. 
We no longer walk in the ways we used to walk because those were ways that led to death and destruction. And Paul said in this way, said it in this way to the Romans. He said, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Several years ago, the, the in thing for a six-year-old <clears throat> was a group of teenage superheroes called Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Kurt, were you a Mighty Morphin Power Ranger? You weren't. Oh, too bad you missed out. <laughs> they were <laughs> oh, Steve was. <laughs> they were a rather unlikely group of, of uh, people to make a big hit, originally produced on a very low budget. These were uh, done in Japan and badly dubbed into English, as I understand it. I've, I've never seen it. But their appeal was that while ordinary teenagers by day, when called upon, they could transform themselves into powerful martial arts experts for justice. They would cry. Does anybody remember what they would cry? It's morphin' time. <laughs> okay, we have, a, we have a fan. It's morphin' time. And you might laugh, but a form of the word morph is the Greek word that Paul uses in Romans to mean this concept, transformation, metamorpho. It's not just six-year-olds who want to morph. All of us should want to morph into something that is so different than the world because that's what we've been called to do, to be something different. Well, what does this new life look like? And Paul talks about this countercultural life, a life that looks much different than the society has to offer. Let's look at a few of the characteristics of this life that Paul has in this passage that we read earlier this morphed life that we should be exhibiting. Because it starts in the next few verses. The first thing, that we should be living a life of integrity. <coughs> Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And you look at the community that Paul is gathering us all into. We are members of one another. Truth does matter, especially to People living in community like the people of God do. Why should we be truthful? Paul says because we're members of one body. And that makes sense. Communities are built upon mutual reliance on one another. How can we be a community? How can we be unified if we don't trust each other? So it, it makes sense, certainly. The next area of our lives that this passage deals with, is be aware of anger. He says, be angry and yet do not sin. Not wrong to be angry. Our response to that anger is what ends up being wrong. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Anger in and of itself isn't wrong. In fact, sometimes we need to get angry. Christians need to be angry at some of those things that we mentioned before that the world is, is grabbing hold of. But Paul knows that anger is one of those emotions that can take hold and overcome us and give the devil a foothold. 
It's like a cancer that infects and rots our soul. And we shouldn't be those people. So Paul says, take care of your anger before it turns into something that is called sin. Before it lets the devil in and rots our soul. The next passage. Don't just not do something. Do something positive. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. That's pretty countercultural, isn't it? Especially this day and age where everybody wants something free. Paul says, don't just stop stealing. If all you do is stop stealing and you don't replace it with something, then you're just a thief between jobs. But if you replace it to where you're working so hard that you have stuff to give away, you're not a thief anymore. Be that person. Watch your mouth. That's one that we should probably adhere to because I'm not sure anything is more viewable than our conversation with people. You know, do we have a pure conversation? Let no unwholesome words proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is as good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do we do that? Give grace to those who hear. James says something very similar. He says, our mouths, our tongue, our words are indeed powerful weapons. He says in James 3.8, but no man can, cont- can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. The word unwholesome actually is used in the Greek to describe spoiled fish or rotting fruit. Is that what you want coming out of your mouth? Certainly don't want that going in, do you? It's bad, it's foul. And we understand it in the terms of foul language, but it can also be understood as destructive language. Paul's concern is that our language builds each other up, that it gives grace to those we hear. It doesn't tear them down. We need to think about what we say before we say it rather than asking for forgiveness. James says that while men have tamed lots of wild beasts, no man has yet tamed the tongue. And you notice that this whole list has been about people living in Christian community that Paul is talking about here. Our lives affect one another. They can encourage one another to live like Christians, or they can give permission for others to say, well, Tom doesn't talk that way. I guess I can talk that way. He then tells us to get rid of hatefulness. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. These things hurt the Spirit of God, the Spirit of community. They grieve him. And I can see the Spirit weeping over our sins. 
because Christians shouldn't be bitter, ever. We're to forgive, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And it seems to me that this forgiveness concept is a key component of Christianity, isn't it? I mean, it's the, it's the stem of, of everything that we are. Jesus Christ forgave us. And the bottom line in all of this is, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Our character should obviously be modeled after that of the Father. Leviticus 19.2 says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's who we should be, holy, set apart. That should be our character. And Paul mentions the underlying foundational motivation for all of it is that of love. We live this way because God loves us and he has done something for us in Christ that no one else could do. He, left, he loved us so much that he gave up his son so that we would not perish. So what's really the bottom line in personal application of this passage to us? Life with Jesus should be distinct from the world. It's supposed to be countercultural. So we ask ourselves, what does my life look like? Is it different, just like everybody else? Or is it truly different? Is it Sesame Street different? Have you sought meaning for your life in places that the world seeks it, or in your relationship with Jesus Christ? If someone from the outside looked in, what would you look like? It should concern each one of us. Are we more like the culture, or are we different from the culture? Is your life truly distinct, truly Christ-like? Do you promote truth and integrity in all that you do in every area of your life, as Jesus did? Do you treat others differently? Do you use your words differently? Do you readily forgive? Do you show love? Do you give rather than take? All questions that we have to ask ourselves and be willing to do something about the answers we don't like. The truth is that for all of us, if we put our lives side by side according, uh, next to Jesus, we'd fall far short, without a doubt. But God is supposed to be transforming us every day into the image of his Son. At least that's his goal. Are we letting him? Think about it this week and be different.